0: So, uh, what did we miss? (laughs) Uh, Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome back after a very long break.
0: Oh, I don't think it's been that long. I mean, you know, in in the scope of the, you know, history of the universe.
1: (laughs) the real important thing is that everything's been totally low-key and nothing's happened. Oh, everything's
0: fine. I mean, you know, we're only shy of, what, like, 110,000 people in our country uh no it yeah we it's been a long it's been a little while actually it's probably the longest we haven't done a new episode Uh, so welcome back and uh, if you are still listening to us thank you on whatever platform it is uh you know even if you're listening by transistor radio or (laughs) something like that if they have podcasts um yeah i i just uh You know, it it was, part of the reason it took a little while to want to podcast again was just because it, you know, it's, we did our episode about what to watch during the quarantine and then uh, life kind of, you know, got in the way and also, you know, it's just, you know, a long string of movies that we have been seeing, you know, at home and, you know, some have been really good, some have been really crap and... Uh, I don't know. It's just, it was hard to think about, like, what could we do an episode on? But
1: we finally have two full-course meals.
0: Oh, yeah. Two full-course meals, which, you know, will we feel, you know, the same about both of them? You know, you'll have to keep listening to find out. But, yeah, there are two new films by, you know, really major, major filmmakers that you may want to check out or you know not but you know let's, we'll try to you know persuade you of course I'm Jack and always with me
1: wifely duty Corey.
0: yes and man we we had a uh, quite a duty for uh, both the movie yesterday and today but in you know interesting ways and the movies that we're going to talk about you can actually check them out yourself too they're both streaming right now which you know, is the way you know, we're kind of watching movies now um, and I, I think we should start with the one we just watched, and okay. then go into the one we saw yesterday. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is Shirley. Yes. And, you know, you can't be serious. <laughs> <laughs> you can't not make airplane jokes. I, I probably should have, uh, you know, you know, try it better. But yeah, this is on Hulu right now. Um... Now, if you haven't heard about this, uh, this is uh, a new film which is uh, stars Elizabeth Moss as uh, the author Shirley Jackson, uh, who you might have heard of. She most known for uh, writing uh, The Haunting of Hill House, a uh, you know, very, very influential uh, horror novel. And also, uh, for some of you who know a little bit more in literature, uh, she wrote the short story The Lottery. Which, I, I've, ex- I've read that.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, neither of us know that much about the real Shirley Jackson. So, we're going to talk about this movie as a movie. And we're not going to be able to make a lot of comparisons between truth and reality. Because we know very little about the real Shirley Jackson, and both of us have only read the lottery and nothing else.
0: Yeah, and of course, if you if you haven't heard of the lottery, and that it actually gets mentioned in this film pretty early on, um, and a character is seen reading it, and other characters talk about it a little bit, um, the lottery is quite the story, uh, you know, where like it's you know about like the society and like another kind of uh, alternate reality where everyone gets together and draws a name and the person who gets picked gets stoned to death uh, <laughs> fun times um, but yeah like so in this movie though which I should just say right off the bat is mesmerizing yes um, that's the word I would use um, we're just it's this film is really incredible at putting you into the headspace of what this director wants you to see. Yeah. And, and feel and hear.
1: I'm a little embarrassed that I had never heard of this director before this movie. Uh,
0: you know what, though? The, this is actually my first uh, experience seeing her work, too. Uh, her name um, is Josephine Decker, um, and uh, she... Uh, is kind of known for a a, a slight. You know, it's a, a, a she. She made a film a couple of years ago that got some real attention on the on the R house circuit called Madeline's Madeline. I just pulled it up here so you can see uh, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit about it. Um, I I did see the trailer for this. I do remember, and that also looked very very like hallucinatory and. Th- Very much about creating a completely surrealistic experience, Um, and uh, you know that sounds strange to say. Like, how is this movie about Shirley Jackson like that? Well, to start off with, the premise is that this uh, this cup this young couple come. uh, They're played. The the two actors are Logan Lerman and uh, Odessa Young. They they come to Shirley Jackson and uh, her, I guess, husband. who's uh, named Stanley, as he keeps reminding people. um, (laughs) He's a professor. And they're on this, basically on this campus, and, um, you know, because he, because Logan Lerman, that character is maybe going to become, like, a tenured professor. He's, like, written a dissertation, you know, in the world of academia. And Odessa Young, uh, she plays Rose. She is kind of there, you know, to support her man, and they're, you know, going to have a baby, And what they get kind of brought into is the, well, mostly Rose gets brought into the kind of delirious, you know, totally closed off, crazy world of Shirley Jackson.
1: (laughs) Well, when we were watching this movie, I said to you, this movie is so dirty, both literally and figuratively.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: On the one hand... The movie spends... We spend so much time in their decaying house. Yes. And we really focus on the dirty dishes, the cracked paint, the musty furniture, and you The really, bugs. The bugs. And you really feel this sense of, like, gross, dank, sweaty heat... And I don't know about you, but I could smell this house. (laughs) And...
0: Yeah, this house needed, like, a touch-up from a landlord.
1: (laughs) But when I say it was figuratively dirty, this movie's also super horny. And every character is full of weird horniness pretty much every moment of the day. And there's all these weird sexual undertones to every interaction, so...
0: Yes, there, I mean, well, there is just, like, the bait, the the first, you know, the sex between this young couple, and that's, you know, within, like, the first, like, five minutes, um, that they're clearly attracted to each other, and I'm I'm glad you get to see that. It's not like they're some type of chaste couple that don't get on. No, they're attracted to each other, but over the course of the movie... I mean there's also the fact that you know Stanley is a, a total horn dog um, who you know can't keep his hands off of uh, other you know other women even when you know he's in front of uh, Shirley and yet Shirley also ev- not right away but eventually you know kind of comes on the Rose. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so, I don't know if
0: that's, like, a mild spoiler. On but, the
1: one hand, we see at times that Shirley is so depressed she literally can't get out of bed. But there are times where she radiates this really intense sexual energy herself.
0: Yeah, I wonder... Well, I I don't think she... I'm not trying to psychoanalyze her, but I don't think she's, like, bipolar. It seemed more like she was very, like kind of agoraphobic, maybe, because she doesn't leave the house, and
1: yeah, not you know,
0: but maybe it's also just full-blown clinical depression.
1: I Yeah, I took it as depression and agoraphobia, uh, but, and again, we're just talking about movie Shirley Jackson. I have no idea what real Shirley Jackson is going on. Yeah,
0: the other movie that did pop into my head, and, but now these movies aren't quite the same, but they do have the dynamic of the middle-aged couple in their way fucking with a young couple, which is, of course, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yeah. Did, that, did, did, did that occur to you at yes, all? Yes, it
1: did. It was a good... It's
0: almost like if who, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf was elongated over many months <laughs> <laughs> instead of just one night, you know, like, because that was also, like, in the world of academia and where... You know clearly, you know, but like with uh, George and Martha, you know, Stanley and Shirley, they—I feel like the times they really relish just screwing with uh, yeah. you know th- these two people.
1: I think that's one of the things that bonds them together. One of the time they're happiest in their marriage when they're communally fucking with other people. Yeah,
0: when they're creating misery. Like <laughs> these are frankly pretty miserable people, and yet it's kind of i was so engaged in watching it and also very tense the, the the other emotion that this creates aside from this kind of surrealistic portrait where at times you're experiencing sort of what elizabeth what, what shirley jackson is trying to conjure as she's writing this book uh throughout throughout the movie um, and she's maybe seeing what this uh, the story within the book seems to be about, like, this missing girl, you're really tense watching it, and Josephine Decker does just this incredible job of making you wonder, like, when is the other shoe gonna drop? Yeah. I don't know if I'm communicating that correctly. No,
1: this movie, it's full of tension, because every single relationship in this movie is fraught with bitterness and with anger and desire and i think the characters in this movie have pretty they're kind of their relationships are very twisted and they've kind of melded desire with anger and bitterness and desire to control and i got a strong sense from the stanley character that he was jealous of his wife's genius. And he's constantly trying to put her in her place.
0: Well, you know, it was that
1: time. Well, I also think... (laughs) I think another kind of theme of this movie is we look at the very obvious extroverted weirdness of both Stanley and Shirley... But I think another thing the movie is going for is that the entire, the world is so messed up, you're almost messed up if you don't freak out. That Mm. basically the only response to an insane world is Shirley's response. Because even, I'm thinking of, say, the party scene. So late in the movie, there's a scene where Shirley has to go to a faculty party with, Stanley and Stanley is openly groping one of his affair partners, and the entire party scene—it's—they're wearing like eyes wide shut orgy masks at one point.
0: I didn't really notice yeah, that. Yeah, there are
1: multiple characters wearing masks, yeah, and the party is so deranged that I almost got from it the movie this idea that as quote unquote crazy. As Shirley seems, maybe that's the only way to respond.
0: But do you think though that maybe that a lot of that goes with it meant? It's meant to be from her perspective.
1: Yes, I think the movie is. I think the movie is really from her perspective and from Rose's perspective. I think yes. that Stanley and I don't even remember Fred. the name of the young husband.
0: Fred, Fred. is like the one who. You might call the most like a quote normie <laughs> or he he tries to be and he it's like he's just so ineffectual through the whole thing and that's like you know i mean and he there are times where he try you know tries to assert himself sexually or turns her down if she wants to have sex but like i get the sense that their relationship even though they find each other attractive like they don't have much in common. No,
1: it's a sh- it to me. It seems like a pretty shallow relationship, and I think we get that where towards the end of the movie we find out. I don't really know if you can do spoilers for this movie because it's really not a plot centric movie at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you if you're really concerned, then you could turn off and come back later. But I it, but I feel like if you are. Re- If you're really interested in this or not, like, you should just keep listening to us discuss it. Yeah, like...
1: But when Rose (coughs) finds out that Fred is cheating, too, Fred is making himself into a miniature Stanley. Oh, yeah. And he's cheating, and at the end of the movie, she has this meltdown with him where she was like, I'm not going to be the cute little wifey anymore. That's what was crazy. Yeah. So I also think there's this theme in the movie that if you're a woman, the only way to get someone to pay attention to you is to act out. That if you don't transgress the bounds of quote-unquote normal society, you're going to be walked all over, you're going to be ignored, you're going to be abused. Because if you look at Rose, in the first part of the movie... She's someone who's dragged around by her husband with no agency over anything. Oh, yeah. Her husband tells her, this is where we live, and this is what you'll do. And Stanley just kind of ropes her in.
0: And and moreover than that, like, Stanley comes on to her as well.
1: Yeah, and Stanley kisses her and fondles her whenever he wants. So in the first part of the movie, she's just kind of she's expected to be this kind of pliant little doll mm-hmm. that does the cooking and the cleaning and is sexually mm-hmm. available whenever they want. Yes. However, if she wants sex and her husband doesn't, well, it's mm-hmm. too bad for her. Yeah. So I think one of the points of the movie is under, under these kind of patriarchal conditions, your choices as a woman are basically be a doormat or be a quote unquote crazy woman.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's and that's well, that's where this like sep, like splits off from Virginia Woolf because th- again, this is I think very much more in like that's where it's a feminist uh, perspective in a, in a great way. In a way, Shirley, you know, acts as like you know this kind of liberation for for Rose. Yeah, you know, even though like Rose knows how terrible. And monstrous, frankly, Shirley can be, you know, to you know, and how, but but she gets, she has a real bond with her, because Shirley doesn't, you know, necessarily always hide who she is, yet, again, part of that tension is also wondering, okay, Shirley is making this connection to Rose as well, as as she sort of says to Stanley at one point, you know, she has her moments, (laughs) like, you wonder... Is Shirley fucking with Rose? like, you know at what point is she really bonding with her, or is she just trying to create you know, this new woman, this new young woman who will like crack up?
1: Yeah, I think my reading of it is when the movie started shirley just wants to mess with rose and rose is a little doll for shirley to play with but i think over the course of the movie there is some kind of real relationship there oh there
0: yeah absolutely absolutely
1: i just think and i don't think the movie shows us that shirley's liberation is healthy or happy but i think the i think the movie's driving at this idea that this is the only way women see to be liberated
0: And I th- and I think that too it, with with Shirley, one thing I found just so fascinating with with her is just how, it she's someone who you can easily you, you know somebody could wa- look at her and easily say oh she's just oh how, how terrible she is but I I found myself having actually some empathy for her yeah you know because like what if she you know you know th- this is She doesn't have anyone else to talk to. She can't really talk to Stanley. She can talk to him in their kind of, like, way of kind of commiserating over misery, if that makes sense. She can play
1: games with Stanley.
0: She can play games with Stanley. And that goes back, again, a little bit with Virginia Woolf. Uh, but, um, But she's also just... I got this like profound aloneness yeah. and that she's so much in her own head. And one of the things too, with the filmmaking that I found interesting was at times it's, it's always a tricky thing in movies to show someone writing yeah, and to show like that process in a film, you know, because how do you show someone typing at a, a type, you know, a typewriter, you know, how does that, does that become monotonous? I found that it was very creative how Decker used you know she would show other things going on and other you know, to put herself in their headspace you'd have little bits of narration and the sound of the keys on the typewriter yeah just that was so specific and i i just even just that simple thing of the keyboard of the of the, of the keys it's almost like she's like it's in her head
1: yeah, I thought this movie did an unusually good job of showing an artist in the throes of inspiration. It, it
0: creates like it's viscera. It's like a visceral experience for her to try to create this stuff. And it's almost like it could break her.
1: Yeah, and we understand what drives her possession because in terms of Shirley's work output, that it's also kind of all or nothing. It's kind of it's either she's in bed and can't do anything, or she's a demon writing every minute of the day.
0: Yeah, and don't don't bother coming in to like ask her how she's doing, or you know, is is this a manuscript or a stack of papers? <laughs> and you know, it, it's uh, the, the whole process of that is uh, like really really great and. I got we gotta talk about Elizabeth Moss now.
1: Yeah, now when I saw the trailers for this movie back when we thought it was gonna be a theatrical release, since I didn't know the director and I didn't know much about Shirley Jackson in real life. What attracted me to this movie was Elizabeth Moss, who is a god among women. She she's such an amazing actress
0: Between like this and the Invisible Woman, wow, like she's got she's been able to have a year In a year where cinema's (laughs) kind of taken a hit.
1: And I just did a super compressed rewatch of Mad Men right before it went off of Netflix. So I watched the entire series in, I think, 16 days.
0: Yeah.
1: And she's obviously actually spectacular in that. And I would argue the true linchpin of the show even more than Don Draper. Oh,
0: no. Well, she's the one who... Gets to have like the real, like, emotional journey, whereas Don is sort of like coasting and like, you know, kind of degenerating.
1: Yeah, so when I saw the acts for this movie, my thought was, I've got to see this movie because I've got to see Elizabeth Moss go to town.
0: Yeah, and to see her go to town against Michael Stuhlbarg, who it was funny because I, I brought this up briefly how this is. He, this is pretty clearly the better of the two movies he's been in the other being Call me by your name <laughs> where he's like a intellectual mentoring like a young man <laughs> yeah and, um, and this is and this actually unlike that movie is sexy yeah in like again a, as you said when we were watching this he was like this is a dirty movie in more ways than one. <laughs> yeah um and
1: even the stanley character is incapable of really being a good mentor because all he sees when he looks around him i think is competition yes so he can't really mentor in a selfless way and he's very he's very domineering of shirley's creative process and he wants her to check in constantly He's like I want to see what you're I want to see what you're writing practically every day.
0: Well, you got to think it has to eat at him so much that, you know, the, that the fact that she wrote could write something and get it such, to such attention like the lottery. Yeah. And he has to live with that. Um, but the filmmakers again, they they I feel like they they do give him some dimension, but again, it's really mostly about these two women. And there it's it's, it's, a, it's a real mind game movie, but the, the real but the thing that makes it so memorable and so great is just the entire vision of it. Yeah. And and that was something I was, I was almost surprised at how much he took to it because I almost would think, oh, is this gonna be a little too surreal for Corey? Is this gonna be like, You know, is she going to think, like, what is this artsy crap?
1: (laughs) That's true. I have less of a tolerance for that kind of thing than you do, but for me...
0: Because, I mean, there are times where the... I don't mean to interrupt you, but there are times where... Decker will just have shots of trees. And, like, the sky. And, like, wobbly you know, out exterior, or dark rooms and stuff.
1: It worked for me because there was enough substance to the main character psychologically, and there was enough going on Yeah. in the relationships to each other. But I was thinking there was a line of dialogue where Stanley savages Fred's dissertation,
0: Yeah.
1: and he says how he can't stand mediocrity, and I was thinking that such a self-indictment and he lashes out so much because some part of him knows what a mediocrity yeah, when is. he is. <laughs> yeah, when he
0: says, like, nothing pains you more than perfectly competent writing. It's yeah. something to that effect. And the way that he, like, Stoolbarg plays that scene, you can feel, like, his own, like, you know, somewhere deep inside, yeah, he knows, like, I'm I ain't shit. <laughs> and you know, and that's like the history of men in academia, so many mediocrities who attach themselves to more talented people.
1: Yeah, and so so many men who only got where they were because they had their women behind them. Yeah. Doing all the actual work and Yeah,
0: wasn't there wasn't there another movie like that where Well oh the wife. Yeah. This is like yeah, the the, the wife comes to mind. Yeah.
1: And what's funny is, Stanley makes multiple references to quote his work, but you almost never see him actually working, which I also think was deliberate, that he has delusions of grandeur that he's on Shirley's level. Yeah. Even though he's not. What's funny is, I've spent almost this entire review talking about what a trash panda Stanley is, but I do think there is something real to their marriage. I do think yeah. there is a real core of
0: They they can't leave each other. Like they, they, they they're kind of bonded at the hip.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't call it love, but I would call it connection.
0: Yes. Yeah. Oh absolutely, yeah. Like and there's a point you wonder, like, is he gonna just be like, I give up, but like she then we'll come back and say something and you can feel it like that their attachment is there. Yeah. That like, and it's, but, but the thing is though, there are things that he doesn't see in her that she keeps and let and light and the, the other side too, that like, she just will not show him sides of herself. And so even though they don't have a shallow relationship There is, like, this level that they're willing to show. Whereas, that's what makes the whole thing between Shirley and Rose so interesting. Is that she sees Rose as this person... Ooh, I can... I don't know if the word I'm using right, but I can imprint on her.
1: (laughs) I have a question for you. Now, one thing that's pretty important to this movie we haven't discussed yet is what motivates Shirley to start writing this book is a woman goes missing yes in her in her general town and we see throughout the movie cuts to that woman walking through the woods and I don't know about you but I I felt like there there was a strong physical resemblance between the missing woman and Rose and that maybe Shirley was almost like merging them in her head that
0: she's projecting.
1: Yeah, and she was projecting her thoughts about the missing girl onto Rose. So I was wondering what you thought about at the end of the movie when Rose says that being the perfect little wifey was over, that's what was crazy. I was wondering if she was planning on making a run for it.
0: Huh, I didn't think about that. Well... No, you you know, that did occur to me. Yeah, well, I don't know making a run, like, going missing, but I was thinking that she would leave him.
1: Because there's also a scene in the movie where Shirley says, if you're a woman, the only way you can get attention is to leave. Yeah. to disappear. Huh. So, part of me wondered if... I mean, we know that, obviously, the status quo between Fred and Rose can't continue after Fred has betrayed her, but I was wondering if it was intentional that we were supposed to see this physical resemblance between the missing woman and Rose. And that maybe we were leading uh, to believe that Rose would go missing.
0: No, that, that that does make some sense. Yeah. Like I the part of the but the, the the thing with watching this movie, it was just the whole presentation is just so nightmarish. Yeah. Way. It, it creates such like a dream logic at, at certain points and how when Shirley is having these visions or even if, even if they are hers maybe it's the movie creating this around the characters as well uh-huh. um, to an extent that you know they're just almost you know Shirley is just you know in this environment and trying to operate the best she can which is her own you know, mental, uh, you know, what have you. Um, but no, that that is a good point. I think that that, that is... I, I would have to watch the movie again to really spot that, but... Because I think that at times, it, some of the editing and how it was shot, it's, you know, it's almost like being in a wavy, like, ocean
1: uh-huh. or
0: something. Um, uh, but I... yeah. You I,
1: nailed I, it when you said this movie is dream logic. That's exactly...
0: Well, that's why I almost thought near the end, like when she's in the car, I almost, the way my brain works, I was like, is Shirley really in the car?
1: <laughs> well, too, the way the way that the movie cuts between Shirley and Rose standing on the edge of the cliff and then sitting in the car. Yeah,
0: you almost wonder, is, did, like, yeah, did, did she actually jump? Is Shirley imagining her in the car? That was yeah. what I thought. Okay. So I I hope I made myself clear. Yeah, that scene near the end where they're on the cliff, I thought that maybe the way this movie operates, Rose could have jumped off. And what if Shirley is imagining her in the car with Fred?
1: That would be interesting, too, especially because it seemed like Rose was emulating Shirley's body language. Like, she tilted her head the way Elizabeth Moss tilted her head. Yeah. And...
0: it ends almost like, uh, like more in like David Lynch territory, where now like the doubles are one again.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, oh God, I gotta show you Lost Highway. Uh, actually, you might not take to that <laughs> as well.
1: But yeah, at the end of the movie, I was a little, what's actually happening and what's in their head.
0: But that, but I love that. Like, I, I this movie just it kept me guessing in a way that I wasn't expecting. Because again, as I said my thought for the movie is at what point are we going to reach a breaking point? Uh, That's usually what this, in this type of psychological head game scenario we're going to go to. Um, But it doesn't quite go the way you'd expect. It it goes in another, you know, it goes into discovering infidelity, but also in that writing this book creates a whole other, Uh, dimension to Uh.
1: it I think another dynamic of the whole thing I was saying about this movie's forwarding this hypothesis that you're a doormat or you act out really dramatically is that Shirley and Rose take diametrically opposed positions on pleasing their man and they both get cheated on yeah so it's like you can't Rose is the perfect little woman who does everything right and her husband cheats on her immediately.
0: Well, you know, well she's pregnant. <laughs> and has a baby, you know. It's all disgusting.
1: And then yeah. Shirley is the difficult woman, and she gets cheated on too. So I think there's this idea that ladies, no matter what, no matter what path you take, your man's going to step out.
0: Especially in academia. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh yeah, it's such a hotbed of... I'm um, just going to say, I think that's something, you know, movies have a much more romantic view of what being a professor is than what being a professor actually is.
0: Yeah, that's like uh, when Woody Allen steps into that too, like a uh, rational man or something like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, to wrap things up, because we've been uh, talking about this for a while, like, I just. I would call, you know, usually this term gets bandied about a lot uh, for, you know, certain filmmakers. It'll get slapped on a poster like Zack mm. Snyder, the visionary director of Three Hundred, mm. and I, I just give the finger to that. Like, fuck you. <laughs> uh, no, Josephine Decker is closer to what I would claim to be a visionary because she creates this whole uh, unique. Uh, experience for the for the audience like uh, you know there could be, there could have been a way to do this movie that would have been a lot more straightforward yeah and you know maybe it would have still had some really good acting but it might not have engaged us as much like if this had been shot by like oh I don't know like uh, uh, what am I trying to think of like uh, uh, like, like the guy who made The Reader. <laughs> I don't even remember who made The Reader, um, and I feel bad because I know Roger Deakins shot that, but, but that was like not necessarily a very interesting movie to look at. This, um, this doesn't look like anything else that you see because it, it tries to really use you know both you know in the production design. In how Elizabeth Moss transforms herself, Uh um, in just how sometimes shots will kind of move around in certain ways that, you know, again, it's the type of thing that psychologically creates a very uneasy experience. Like, because sometimes the camera is moving around these characters in ways that are just not how you normally make them. Like, it's not like, you know, like what. You know, it gets der- derisively called coverage. Where you're just uh, like, now we have this shot, now we have this shot. And it's more about, like, putting you on edge. Like, this is like a... this is a horror movie.
1: It is. And I also was really glad that... Even though we're supposed to believe their house is quite shabby... I'm really glad that Decker didn't go with some bland, desaturated color palette but went to the other extreme.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: This movie is just bursting with these really rich jewel tones. Jewel tones? Another thing I loved about this movie, it was like a stylistic flourish that she used a few times. I loved the cutaways to the young women in the trees. In the college?
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, that's supposed to be like the quote-unquote Shakespeare Society, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and what we find out about them later, like, the, yeah, they they feel like these weird like spirits that are just there in the college. Yeah,
1: there are two. There are two scenes where we see. These really bodacious women, like, yeah. frolicking in a tree together. And there's another scene where we see the girls getting out of class. Yeah. And, and I I can't quite reconcile how this movie is both frumpy and horny. <laughs> because both Michael Stolberg and Elizabeth Moss are very frumped up.
0: The, the This movie is, like, fucking a very... Dirty, <laughs> like, messy, old stocking.
1: And... Uh, <laughs> this, <laughs> this is the kind of movie, too, where even when my conscious mind wasn't 100% sure of where the movie was going, I could just feel it in my bones. Like, yeah. I could just feel this movie on some level beyond speech.
0: Well, that's what, well, that's what I was trying to communicate with how it's, like... You know, again, not like that's like what cinema is working on you. Like that—that's what cinema can do. Like that's when it's real. When someone is really trying to create something different, Um, she's not making something perfectly competent. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and one last note: Um, uh, in the notes in the credits, Scorsese produced this.
1: Very good.
0: So I'm glad. I, I don't know what his role was in. You know, making, doing this production, I'd like to, you know, it'd be cool to know if, like, maybe he helped, like, get some more money for it, or, you know, to, you know, to back her, the director up, because, like I said, she's made a few movies before this, but they've been very, like, under the radar. Well,
1: who knows what kind of movies we're going to have access to for the rest of the year? So this will probably go down as like one of the best movies we see this year.
0: Oh yeah, oh it's it's, got, it's shot up to the top for me. Is like.
1: you're number 1 so far.
0: It might be, like, this and Bad Education. I was
1: going to say, I would still rate yeah. Bad Education above Yeah, it.
0: we were almost... I was almost going to do... We were, also gonna, we were almost going to do a review of Bad Education. We we highly recommend that, too, by the way, if you have HBO. Uh, yeah,
1: my film of the year so far would definitely be Bad Education, which just knocked mm, my socks off.
0: I might go more for Shirley, but... um.
1: You want to move to our next movie?
0: Yeah, speaking of visionaries... With maybe a little bit more spotty track records. <laughs> uh, we got to talk about a new Spike Lee joint.
1: Yes! Da Five Bloods!
0: Yes, da, and make sure to say Da Five Bloods. Yes. Because, you know, it's there in the, the title. Uh, that's that's you know, it's Spike Lee's thing. Um, yeah, uh, this movie is... Uh, uh, <clears throat> well, to, to tell you first of all, it's a Netflix movie... Um, Viet, uh, kind of a what we might call a post post Vietnam movie yeah. um where basically the, the setup is that we got um these four uh you know older gentlemen uh meet up in, uh, once you know after decades uh, in Vietnam to you know go to go through this promise they made to each other because somehow they're you know they're on like a, a helicopter got shot down. They discovered another helicopter that had all this uh, gold that was meant to be like it was US gold that was gonna be given to the Vietnamese and they took it and hid it. Yeah. And so now it's decades later and you know, maybe after maybe the, maybe people aren't you know, Vietnam isn't so hot anymore. Um, and they're gonna go and based on a quest to dig it up and, and you know, and do things with it. And you know that that's a premise for a movie. What Spike Lee puts into it is this is a full course meal of Spike Lee. That's yeah. what we should say first and foremost. Um, and what I'm impressed first by this movie is just how they the what I thought could have been a lot messier of a film story-wise ended up really ended up coming together once these guys actually get onto the, the the quest part of the movie
1: I would say that I liked this movie
0: mm-hmm.
1: however I liked it don't get me wrong but I'm a little disappointed I didn't love it because I, a, I have pretty high standards where Spike Lee is concerned I think he's great, and I love so many of his movies that I've got a pretty high bar. Mm-hmm. And then the second reason I'm a little disappointed, I liked it, but I didn't love it, is this is obviously a very ambitious movie, and it's obvious that it's a movie that's shooting for the stars and really wants to blow you away.
0: Well, it's it's also the, the idea that we just came off of uh, Black Klansman. Yes, And that was, you know, one of his best films. That was him really, that's perfect, that really unique synergy of a lot of anger, a lot of humor, a lot of dy- very dynamic characters, but it felt very, but it felt mostly pretty coherent. Um, but, you know, but for me, it's like, I'm very impressed by Spike Lee. You know, he's one of our, you know, major American artists, he can have a, he's had a little bit of a spotty track record the past 20 years, <laughs> starting with bamboozled. Um, Cause sometimes his attempts to make a message in his movie might, can overcloud like the story he's trying to tell or, you know, or you know, he's, I think you mentioned it when, uh, when we were watching this movie, Spike Lee says things very He's very big and passionate, yeah. and that's what you like about him. Um, yeah. But that can also sometimes lead to, you know, he, he, he's making stuff so big and so passionately that he loses the thread.
1: Do you know what they... I, yesterday, when I was on my walk, I listened to the film spotting episode where they reviewed The Five Bloods yes. and they talked about the top five Spike Lee movie. Top five Spike Lee shots. Were they all and,
0: the, I have to just ask... Were all the shots, the gl- guy is gliding towards the, uh, the camera.
1: <laughs> they specifically said they were going to limit themselves <coughs> to only the best shot like that. But anyway, what they said when... I don't remember whether, whether it was Adam or Josh. But one of them said that Spike Lee engages in what they called direct address cinema. Mm. And what they called wake up cinema. Yeah. And they thought that a lot of times he was operating in wake up mode where he's trying to shock you, the audience, by showing you like, look at how terrible this is. You have to see it. You have to bear witness to what's happening. Yeah. And then they said he also does direct address cinema where they mention like Spike Lee can be didactic, Mm -hmm. but that's it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Where Spike Lee will just flat-out sit you down and almost like... Lecture sounds negative, and I don't mean it in a negative way. I mean it in a positive way. But his movies are almost like him just sitting down and talking to you and telling you, like, this is what I need you to know.
0: Oh, yeah. And he'll sometimes... And and he'll use his, you know, using cinematic language, he'll sometimes just... The characters will be talking about an issue, and he'll cut to a sh- like an, a, uh-huh. you know a still image or a a a, a fr- or something to emphasize that, and that might and it's very much like all an exclamation points. Of uh, something I liked though that what um, it almost felt uh, in a in a good way like Godardian. Um, I, I haven't used that phrase in a <laughs> while. Um, He, um, a couple times, and this is in, like, because, again, these characters are in present day, but at times you see flashbacks to when Mm. they were, well, I would say younger, but he (laughs) uses a, he decides to not go the Irishman route and de-age his actors. And
1: he doesn't cast younger actors.
0: No, the only exception is Chadwick Boseman, who plays the, the one of the the five bloods that didn't make it out originally. Um... There's a there are a couple points where there's like this like chain there's this Ho Chi Minh radio announcer who is like talking to both you know she's talking to the audience and also to the Five Bloods and there's a point where she's communicating to them that Martin Luther King has been shot yeah and look what America look what America has done to you look like your cities are burning. How can you go back to them? You know, why are you hold, why are you doing this? Like why why are you trying to be all American and I I thought that worked brilliantly.
1: Yes, I loved Hanoi Hannah.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, that was her name? Hanoi yeah. Hannah. I almost
1: wish she had been a bigger character in the movie. I loved Hanoi Hannah.
0: Yeah, I wish that she had been kind of like to this movie, what Dolomedes was to Chirac. Yes. Good old Dolomedes. Um yeah, it, like cuz like little moments like that work. What I'm wondering what you think about though, like you know talking about you you know making sure you know the commentary in this movie. Um, the fact that the, the Delroy Lindo character, his name's Paul, that he's like very clearly a trumper. Yeah. In a way that I mean the fact that you know Having a black trumper, I mean it's it's like having like you know like a a, a you know a healthy double quarter pounder. <laughs> it's like I'm sure you can get some health value, but it's very unlikely like why do you think he made that choice?
1: My attitude was I looked at Paul and I saw the deficiencies in Paul's character as a reflection of the fact that, basically, he was in a state of arrested development. Mm -hmm. That he would always be the man he was in Vietnam, and that he had been so scarred by Vietnam, which is one reason why, even if it was just done for budgetary reasons, I actually really like, from an artistic perspective, the fact that all these, like, 60-something-year-old men played themselves in the Vietnam flashbacks because what I took from that was this idea that A, when the men think back to who they are in Vietnam they imagine their present day selves and I also take that in some ways these at least um, Paul will always be who he was in Vietnam and he will be trapped by who he was in Vietnam so I looked at his support for Trump as a manifestation of his raging anger issues, yes, and he's kind of almost like cold bullying. Yeah.
0: Instead. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And also, this to me, I, I I think it does work. Ultimately, I mean, granted, you know, you're seeing that red hat through yeah. the whole movie because he's wearing it when he, you know they're going through the jungle uh, to to find the gold. Um, to me, it's almost like he has like this view, maybe, of America that, that you know, like, we're you know, yeah, like, America's screwed over the black man, but you know, you gotta be tough. You gotta be a very tough guy. You gotta fight through that shit.
1: Yeah, it's bluster, and you can see that he has very little compassion for other people, very little... Um, tolerance or sympathy mm. for the perceived shortcomings of other people. You can see his own son is a character in the movie. Yes, he's pretty terrible with his son.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. He he like, the, he bullies his son mm. and acts totally indignant when his son just shows up to you know offer help. And oh, by the way, his son is played by uh, Jonathan Majors, who you might have uh, might if you saw the black, last black man san francisco he was he made an and impression and i
1: also one of the things i took from the movie was this idea of cycles of trauma that the characters in the movie are traumatized by the racism they experience as young black men yeah and then they go and then when they go to vietnam they're in a cycle of trauma where obviously going through war is traumatic but then they want to visit that trauma on the Vietnamese.
0: Yeah, and, and they believe that, you know, if we can get this gold, there's a little bit of a... There, there's also this conflict among them about what to do with the gold, too. Because originally... Um, oh, I'm trying to remember the Chaz, Chadwick Boseman character...
1: Storm and Norman.
0: and uh, Norman! It's easy to remember. It's like, <laughs> Starvin Marvin. Uh, no, Storm and Norman... Yeah, like they initially their their thought is we're gonna use this gold to, you know, prop up black society. We're gonna yeah. a- actually invest. You know, this is millions and millions of dollars. We're going to make sure that black people get their fair shake in yeah. society. Um, but then there's also, but then they have the thought, well, why don't we just keep it for ourselves?
1: Yeah, and so there's this notion of is the gold compensation enough for? what these men endured, what was what they did and what was done to them. And to go back to the Trump hat, I definitely think the movie's anti-Trump in the sense that we're supposed to see Paul's support for Trump as evidence of character defect.
0: No, no, I, 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 I and... do no, absolutely. Like, it's not, he's not meant to, his Trumpism, if we like Paul, it's despite the red hat. Yeah. Like, or not even, I don't know if like is the word. He's just, you know, we got, I mean, Delroy Lindo.
1: Yeah, I feel character. a little embarrassed that we've gone this far without talking about what a spectacular performance this is.
0: I mean, there's, a, like, the a lot of the cast is really terrific. I mean, you have Clark Peters. He's uh kind of the other character that is probably most defined. He He's the... uh He's the one that tries to talk the most sense. Uh, He's uh, Otis. Then you also have in the group Norm Lewis. Hey, Mm -hmm. Norm. He plays Eddie. He's the one who's more of like... Well... (laughs) He's like the character who's kind of least defined for the most part. And then uh, rounding it up is Isaiah Whitlock. Mm -hmm. Who you know as... She...
1: And he's also been in many episodes of Law and Order. Of course he has. I should say, though... As great as Delroy Lindo is, I feel like one of my biggest problems with this movie is the other members of the ensemble are just not developed enough. I
0: I think Clark Peters got enough development, although that is is a flaw in the movie, though, that, like, it's part of his, like, he gets a little bit of, like, a, I don't even know if you'd call it a subplot, but, um... The, I, I don't know if... Can we, we can just talk freely yeah. about the movie. I don't know if this is necessarily... Spoiler, spoiler warning. Spoiler, spoiler warning. Go go watch the movie if you don't want to be spoiled. Um, his character finds out when he goes back to Vietnam. It's uh, it's basically almost a trope by this point yeah. of the whole thing of I left behind a kid because I knocked someone up and yeah. oh my god, I'm a dad. Uh, because Claire, like, he, he meets up with this... Uh, slightly older but not as old as him a vietnamese woman who shows this is my daughter and clearly is a mix and he has the reaction of is it mine is is she mine And, and she's like yes and first of all that doesn't get developed at all that's just kind of left as like a scene that frankly someone should have told Spike Lee, either you develop this as more of like a real subplot or just cut out the scene because the actors don't look like they should after 50 years. Yeah,
1: that's the other thing. If this woman is his daughter, she should be 50 years old. The actress is not even in the same stratosphere age-wise. And the mother... Frankly, the mother looked young enough to be Clark Peter's daughter.
0: <laughs> yeah. The yeah. mother
1: <laughs> would have to be in her late 60s at, at the youngest, like the absolute youngest she could be. So I don't know why it didn't bother me at all that they were like the old versions of themselves in the Vietnam flashback. And I thought that worked. But it really bugged me well, that the ages were off by decades.
0: Well, well, it worked in the in the flashbacks because a they didn't they peppered them enough throughout the movie that you like they it worked as a theatrical device. Like mm-hmm. it, it worked in the way that okay, we notice that the older actors are playing themselves in flashbacks, but again, it works in that way that you described that. You could, you can understand it in a like as an artistic decision that yeah. they are uh, reliving their their past. They can't let go. Not just Paul, but it could be said for the other characters as well. As a yeah. collective, the five bloods will always be themselves. Um, but but that stand. But the others. But that scene stands out with the. With the Vietnamese, you know, with the, with the woman and daughter, because, you know, A, it's, it's just this one scene, or it'll be a couple of scenes, but we can tell that the ages don't match up, yeah. and again, it's just, it, it feels like a bit of padding.
1: Yeah, and also, I think the casting maybe <clears throat> the reason why it bothered me, even though it's a minor part of the movie, it just feels careless. It would have been so easy to actually cast age-appropriate actors. Yeah,
0: the other—that's part of why I mentioned that the movie gets off to a little bit of a rough start because it's like when they're still in in the city and they're they're starting a little bit early on their journey. We're still trying to get used to knowing these characters, and except for Paul, you're right that we're not. You know, the the actors themselves they have very good bonding, like in the moment. Like, they're they're able to talk shit, they're able to, you know, talk with one another, but we're wondering, like, where is the story going, and...
1: Which is why I said to you when we were watching this that I know actual Spike Lee would kick my ass for saying this because Spike Lee really doesn't like Quentin Tarantino, but I said that I think Quentin Tarantino could have, like, written some really badass ensemble hangout scenes for this character, because... Delroy Lindo as Paul is a titanic performance. It's great. But it kind of crowds out the other characters. And I think I think the acting in this movie is strong across the board. So it's not oh, yeah. an actor problem. Um, but I'm sorry. If I'm watching a two and a half hour movie, I need more from the character development well, of the other blood. Well, but
0: I, but I feel like once... That's why I said though once they are... You know, off of uh, the boat. Which, oh, by the way, we have to have an Apocalypse Now reference. Yeah. That almost felt like Spike Lee had bullhorns, like, "Yo, we're watching Apocalypse Now. Ride the Valkyries." Show <laughs> sure enough. I'm not trying to do a voice or anything. I was just yeah. imagining what Spike Lee would say in that moment. Um, but, uh, what I but what, what I responded to is once they're really there in the jungle, I thought the story actually coalesced more together. I thought even the bond between, like, the characters became a little bit more defined. And when the violence starts to really ratchet up, that is truly shocking. That... There are some sequences in this movie where we were, like, holding each other. That, like, the tension that Spike Lee creates, I don't think I've seen him do that kind of tension and... Like, nail-biting, like, oh my god, are they going to get out of this moment? I I don't think I've seen him do that in his career, and that was exciting.
1: Any scene with a landmine in this movie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and the first character to get it. I was kind of impressed that Spike Lee didn't do, like, the cliche of the character saying, like, oh, I can't wait to get back to... (laughs) my wife and kids, you know, that that whole thing. No, the character who first gets it is kind of a loser.
1: Yeah, and I, he explicitly says he has no one to go home to. And he's kind, his life has kind of been ruined. Yeah, it's
0: almost like the landmine does him a favor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, and also it's just, uh, eventually what I also latched on to, which I know y- as you wouldn't have had this connection because you haven't seen the movies like I have, but the the clear influence of Treasure of the Sierra Madre i thought was it really worked in this movie like even more than like apocalypse now references which you know fine like to me the the bogart character in sierra madre his whole thing is that like he his character was like a veteran who was basically tossed aside after the like world war 2 and was kind of like a, a reject in Mexico. Mm. But then he finds, like, you know, these guys, and suddenly there's, like, ooh, maybe we can find all this gold. But his... The worst parts of him take over. Mm. And, you know, eventually he screws over everybody and is off on his own. That is, like, what Spike Lee and or Lindo are channeling eventually in this movie. Mm. And I thought that that was really thrilling, that you know and, and i think anybody if if people have seen that movie they'll probably make that connection but spike lee makes it his own too See,
1: i i loved the scene where the sun steps on the landmine and they have to navigate how to deal with it yeah i loved that that's scene.
0: what i was saying
1: yeah but i wasn't as interested in kind of the final shootout that was a little bit
0: of that was a little generic yeah
1: and by the time we got to that, I was kind of mentally running the wrap it up clock on this movie.
0: <laughs> well, again, and it's that's a problem with Spike Lee too. That uh, um, with a number of his movies, and like this is a much better movie than Miracle at St. Anna, but that movie had that problem too.
1: I did not see Miracle at St. Anna because everyone said it was boring and bad, so I did not
0: see. Um, that. I I will see every movie that Spike Lee makes, and I, you know, there was a period where I you know you, you 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 go back to a filmmaker's work and see everything he's done um, so i've seen everything like including she hate me yeah uh- <laughs> which
1: was, like funny i remember
0: unintentionally
1: yeah. or not in the way that he intended
0: no no th- this is meant to be like a movie that's not i mean there are there are a couple of moments where you'll laugh but this is mostly a very serious somber movie and I think mostly it works. Like, there's this one stretch in the film where it almost feels like the shot lasts five minutes where Delroy Lindo is on his own and it, you could feel like his mania is, like, coming off him. Yeah. Um, which is, like, I guess the one thing that kind of ties this in with uh, Shirley. If no other connection except for that. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, because he splits off from the rest of the group.
0: Yeah. And uh, what I... What, is so great about that is you would think oh this could this could become self indulgent like this actor is really going to chew up the scenery but window doesn't do that he's he's still making you feel how like lost he is and it's this it's very tricky because you know he's been like such a monumental asshole through so much of this movie mm-hmm. and basically left his group to fend for themselves and he's left himself to suffer. Well,
1: I, I think one of the things, too, like is... Like, he,
0: he's doomed. He's a he's so tragic.
1: Yeah. He is tragic, especially because as much as he lashes out at other people, he's also very self-loathing. And we find out in the flashback, and this is something... I knew this is gonna... I knew this was gonna be the story. Storm and Norman is dead, and he was killed in friendly fire.
0: Yeah, that was actually... I'm still actually not sure how I feel about that reveal. I don't know if that is something that does work to reveal something about Paul's character. Or if that's like one of those things that's a war movie cliche.
1: For me, it worked because it helped explain why Paul a is so disillusioned and B it, help, it helped it helps explain why he couldn't move on yeah after the war but so even though I think it's kind of predictable like I knew before it happened that that's where they were gonna go with the death of Norman I was that- hope
0: I was just I was hoping that they wouldn't somehow like I thought it would be because they hype up Norman so much. Uh-huh. And they, and then Chaz and Chadwick Boseman in his in his moments gets to really uh, uh, chew it up in a good way as like this, you know, I'm I'm clearly the leader of this group, like uh-huh. I'm, but I was hoping that maybe it would have been just something more random.
1: Well, that I have to say too, I I don't know how I felt about Norman because the thing with Norman is we obviously since Norman's been dead for 50 years, Norman exists only in the minds of the five bloods. And understandably, their memories of him are re- kind of... I've kind of flattened him out.
0: The, the, he's mythic.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. He's mythic. and
0: uh, Or I think one of them even says he was like Malcolm and Martin combined.
1: And while I understand that, and it it's plausible to me that he would be mythic in their minds... I wish Norman was a bit more persony and a bit less mythic. Uh,
0: I was fine with it just because it, how Spike Lee shot it, and like I think Bose. If he had a different actor, it might have not worked. But I oh. thought you know you have literally Black Panther playing no. this guy.
1: So yeah, it's I think it's justifiable because Spike Lee makes it very clear that this is their image of Norman.
0: Yeah. And it's almost like a it's it's a movie image. Yeah, in its and way. He sh-
1: and whenever they whenever we see Norman, the color scheme is kind of flashing to us. This mm-hmm. is not real life.
0: And and the aspect ratio changes. That's the other thing. He very yeah. clearly changes the uh, the look of the film based on where we're at. Like the the opening part of the movie is in widescreen, and then these flashbacks are more like of a box.
1: But it just goes to my point that I wish other characters besides Paul gave me more to chew on.
0: I, I No, that is a fair criticism. I just thought that there, there was a little bit more ultimately to a couple of the characters in in the group. Uh-huh. It, to, it took a while to get there, but mm-hmm. eventually I do think that there was enough that I was able to see that it's not just Paul. That there, there are a couple more things. I guess you could. That was also maybe an issue. Maybe going back to Sierra Madre, where you know mm-hmm. Bogart and maybe Walter Houston are so, you know, big in that movie. Oh fuck! Who's the other? I think it was a Tim Holt guy. Uh, somebody will correct me, probably. But
1: and I guess the thing is, when I'm watching the movie, I don't care about the gold at. All. And I don't care oh, about no, the no. mechanics oh, of getting. Oh
0: no gold. no it's it's that's it's the plot device. It's, um, it's it could have been any it could have been anything. Yeah. It, it could have been like um, if it wasn't gold, it could have been. Uh, well, I get well one thing I guess it being gold is the fact that they it you you almost don't know what the value is.
1: And <clears throat> what I was most interested in is the relationships between the five bloods and who the five bloods had been. And the other thing was, another thing I said is I wish I had more of a sense of what the relationship had been between them mm. over the last decades. Like, I wish I had a clearer sense of what their relationship was to each other between the time they get back from Vietnam and the time.
0: Yeah. We talked about that a little bit when we were watching the movie. I, I, I got the sense that Paul and uh, and Otis, that's Clark Peters, mm-hmm. that maybe they stayed in touch a little bit. But the other character... Well, I don't know, because the other character, well, they did know that Eddie had, like, dealerships and stuff. Yeah. So maybe they had, like, that type of, of thing where maybe they were actually disconnected for a while, but then they became, like they friended each other on Facebook.
1: I also, when I was watching this, I thought it was kind of interesting. I thought this was both a war movie and a commentary on war movies. Where Spike Lee pretty much directly says to the audience, it's so bogus that all war movies focus on all white soldiers when it is black people that disproportionately fight our wars. Oh yeah.
0: Oh, oh, that's absolutely. And I I thought that was a, Piece of the commentary that especially worked because yeah that that's been the case and that's something that even hanoi hannah brings up the yeah. fact that you know you you know when these wars come up like vietnam and you know we're, we're gonna say like oh we're fighting communism we're fighting this or that but no we're just gonna send our the ones who can't get out of it and we're gonna yeah. send the ones that are most expendable and uh, and Lois on the totem pole, um, and yeah, I, I, I thought that worked very well. Um, yeah,
1: so I could appreciate where this movie was going thematically, and I liked it, and I think it's interesting, and I think it's worth watching. But I wish it had like really blown me away like a lot of other Spike Lee movies did.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would say this is a good movie. It is it is quite good. Um, I wouldn't say like, oh my god, this is the you know the best movie of the year. Um, I you know because I think it, it it coheres enough and it has again that volcanic performance at the center where you know because de- and the other thing too with Delroy Lindo, I haven't seen him in a movie in a while. Have you?
1: Yeah, you know it's funny when I when we were on Letterboxd yesterday. And I was uh, reading to Five Bloods. He hasn't even been in as many movies you know, as I thought he was. Do you was. know what
0: the last movie I saw him in? Up.
1: Why isn't this man working constantly? I mean,
0: maybe he's... Has he been doing more TV? I
1: don't know. I, I mean, mean, who
0: knows? Maybe. Well, maybe... I, I think there was he a... He was on Law and Order. Oh, was he a regular?
1: No. He was, um...
0: Well, of course he was on Law and
1: Order. They're all on Law and Order.
0: They're all on it! Yeah, like... If there's an actor who isn't on Law & Order, they need to fire their agent.
1: (laughs) Um, You know what's funny? I read an interview with... You remember the show The Adventures of Pete and Pete? Yeah. Both the Pete's were on Law & Order in different episodes. And I think it was the younger Pete, Danny Tamborelli, who actually said in an interview... You know your career is over when you can't get booked on Long
0: Island. <laughs> and I say, that is she. <laughs> uh, no, I but the thing, yeah, I wouldn't say this is one of his best, but it's certainly far from, you know, being, like, the messy Spike Lee, where, you know, because he has, because there are bad Spike Lee movies. I mean, as f- even though it's wildly entertaining, I think Chirac is kind of bad. Yeah, and okay. and like, uh, oh god, um, old boy is pretty bad too. Yeah,
1: and I've also bamboozled is a fantastic premise with terrible production values.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and whatever Damon Waynes was doing in that movie too didn't work. And I, 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 it's like I respect bamboozled what it was trying to do, but yeah, like that was just like a really you know of an experiment that fell on its face um this is like a very you know it is a major work you know by by this filmmaker and it, he's clearly want having a lot to say mm-hmm. about vietnam about wars and ultimately you know he he also brings it back around at the very end you know because you know it has to you know, have to have black lives matter as well yeah Um, that felt a little crowbarred in there, but I guess, you know...
1: The only thing (laughs) that felt crowbarred into it was, I actually thought the ending of the movie was pretty downbeat, and was going thematically almost for a, you can't break the cycle of trauma, and and you'll never break kind of the racist wheel.
0: Yes, there's a really terrific final sort of letter-slash-monologue that Delroy Lindo reads, Um, and that worked very well, like, that, that I think is a very potent, uh, device that helps to wrap things up a little bit. Uh, What I meant was, like, the little
1: bit after that. Yeah, so I feel like the little bit (laughs) after that, um, it jars a little bit with the letter, because I think the movie's going to a pretty downbeat place, but I guess...
0: He, he had to kind of try to bring it back to, uh, um... You know, like a little bit of hope, I, I guess. But then he, but then he undercuts that too with the MLK bit at the very end too. Yeah. So it's a little bit like I guess it's disappointing how the movie wraps up, just in the sense that you know when we had Black Klansman, just the last movie, he ended that on such a you know a punch in the gut.
1: Yeah, and I I said you were done watching this. I feel like for me, this movie is a little bit of the whole is less than the sum of its parts, because I think there are int- I think there are interesting components to it, yeah. And I feel like there are things in this movie that I feel like I don't know <laughs> if I've like ever seen addressed before in a war movie. Oh yeah, which I really appreciated. But there, I can't deny that the actual experience <laughs> of watching it. Was also a little frustrating because I I was thinking you've given me a lot to chew on thematically, but I need a little bit more from you in terms of character development. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I, I think I have slightly similar criticisms that you do. Uh, I think I just come out on it a little bit because, like, the, the stuff that was positive, I was very positive on. Um, you know, but I, w- I would say you should s- you should see it.
1: It's definitely worth watching.
0: Yeah, especially you know what else are you going to watch? You know, I mean, uh, I mean you can catch up on ninety day fiance <laughs> if you're so inclined. Or, uh, no, Spike Lee is you know what a what a character. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about him. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, this is definitely a very unique, you know. Post, post like I said, post-post-post-Vietnam movie. Like, yeah. the, you know, he... Um, and that's, you know, but that's... I like seeing a filmmaker who has so much to say. Because sometimes, yeah. you know, you get someone who, you know, doesn't really have much to say, except let's keep the wheels moving on this story. Yeah,
1: I really appreciate the movie's ambition and... I appreciate the fact that I know when I watch a Spike Lee movie, I'm going to see something that I'm not going to see from anyone else. Yeah. No, no. I'm going to say, well, I was reading on Twitter last night. Max Oller Sykes was talking about how Spike Lee's movies just course with vitality. Yeah. And so, yeah. Even though, um...
0: It's a flawed vital work, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: even though I kind of wish it had blown me away the way so many of his other movies have. Do you
0: want to use that metaphor with this movie?
1: Oh, oh god, (laughs) you're right! (laughs) And I've said that like half a dozen times. Yeah, I wish this movie had landmined me. Uh, Poor Eddie.
0: (laughs) Oh, poor Eddie. Uh, yeah, so again, if, you, if you've seen either of these movies and have any thoughts, please make sure to you know reach out to us. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, I'll probably share this on Instagram. Uh, we got the email. We still check every now and then. Um, so, yeah. So, thank you uh, to uh, Netflix and Hulu for coming through on this. Uh, we, yeah. didn't, we, didn't have, we didn't have to pay $20 to rent it. Yeah, uh, which, I mean, I'm sure I'll do that maybe with a movie eventually. I just, I'm just, so, like, it's so weird to think about trying to rent a movie for $20 yeah, when they, we would, <laughs> when, you know, when we were previously paying $20 a month to see, like, three movies a week.
1: Yeah, we lived in the AMC A-list world. If these studios think I'm going to pay $20 to rent a movie, they got another I, thing coming. I mean,
0: if it was a new, like, Spielberg movie or new like uh, I don't know, if they unearthed a new Jonathan Demi movie or something, maybe I'd do that. But I don't think I'm gonna pay twenty dollars to see Pete Davidson like smoking weed. We've got plenty
1: of, <laughs> I think the studio should keep in mind. We've got plenty of T V to watch. So Yeah. No twenty dollar rental fees.
0: And but with that said, hopefully next time when we come back with Wages of Cinema, we won't maybe we'll, we won't keep you waiting quite as long as last time you know we love you listeners we love talking to you we yes. love talking about movies you know trying to keep this form alive in a way that uh you know as long as we can watch things and i don't know yeah. what else to say about that
1: well we love movies we love each other
0: uh-huh. we love everything I love every, we love the world and hopefully the world will stop dying and being so insane and yeah and hopefully next time we come back to you we'll have you know new movies or older movies or something like that so until next time I'm Jack
1: I'm Wifely Duty Scory.
0: and the wages of cinema is hugs yeah I don't want to say death you know, yeah
1: yeah you know. is kind of a bummer now
0: yeah the <laughs> yeah the wages of cinema is hugs
1: hugs Only with the person in your household, because you're still observing social distancing guidelines.
0: Exactly. Yes. Uh, Hugs in COVID uh, description. All right. Good night.